Next. <laughs> My name's Rod, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> it's the damnedest thing I ever saw. This has got to be one of the neatest facilities to do. I, I keep thinking about this guy here, okay? Would you buy a used car from him? <laughs> Amos, we, we went to lunch with Amos and, and, and Sue for lunch. And Amos pulled me aside, and he was telling me, he was telling me a story about Charlie. Charlie's in his car business, and he says just before he got sober... Charlie lost the car. And he's looking for the car. <laughs> and somebody came up to him and says, says, Charlie, what are you doing? And Charlie says, I'm looking for the car I lost. And he says, where did you last see it? And Charlie says, it was right here on the end of my key. <laughs> and it was old Jack S. over there. You know, not I don't break anybody's anonymity, but Miss, Miss Sullivan's boy, Jack, you know. <clears throat> and, and Jack says, Charlie, you're drunk. Zip up your pants and go home. And Charlie looked down and says, my God, I lost my girl, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now that we got the spiritual part out of the way, right? I'm so glad we'll see somebody came up here a while ago with, was it one or two days? Two days, two days sobriety. Because I don't know about you guys, I don't know a thousand people here, something like that, but that guy made my job easy, didn't he? Yeah. He really made my job easy. Because you guys have been around here any length of time. I didn't come up here for that. You don't save any souls and conventions like that. What we do is just have a good time. We kind of de- demonstrate to the newcomer that this thing kind of works and we have a lot of fun in here. Not just sobriety, right? But that's the guy I'd like to talk to just a second. By the way, let me say something else. I don't, might as well tick somebody off before I get started. I usually wait a little bit longer, right? I said at the top of this thing, my name is Rod Cost and I'm an alcoholic. I guess that is the most important thing that I'm going to say tonight, okay? I am an alcoholic. I am not an alcoholic and on anything else, okay? That is not to run down anything else around here, okay? I may be an alcoholic and an addict. I may be an alcoholic and oversexed. Got a hell of a memory, Charlie. <laughs> but in here, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? And I believe for me to say, I, all my life I've been different. Y'all understand that? And for me to come in here and say, I'm an alcoholic and anything else, I believe it's to say that I'm different one more time. And I'm going to dilute what I believe to be the most important, most powerful thing that's ever been put on the face of God's earth, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? I believe it. But what I've got to say to the new guy that came up here just a few minutes ago is this. And there may be some others in here with, say, less than 30 days. See if you, maybe I'm the only one that ever felt like this. I don't know when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I knew some things about me. Some of y'all have heard me say this before, but it's my story and I'm going to stick with it, okay? One thing is I knew, above all else, that I was the most unique person on earth. Can y'all buy that? I knew I was different from you and I could tell I was different from you by looking at you. Have you ever seen anybody look down, come down the street meeting you that looked like you felt? <laughs> They'd put them in a straitjacket right now, right? And the other thing I knew beyond a question of a doubt, come on, y'all, particularly newcomer, I knew that I was not an alcoholic. Because I knew what an alcoholic was. I knew that an alcoholic was a person that had a problem with alcohol. And I hear, still hear that crap in meetings all the time. If you got a problem with alcohol, come to alcohol. Some. Hell, if you got a problem with alcohol, quit drinking. <laughs> And I knew I didn't, this is what I knew. I had an awful lot of problems, y'all. And very few of them had anything to do with drinking alcohol. And here was the kicker to it. The problems I had were far more intense when I was not drinking alcohol. Therefore, alcohol wasn't my problem. 
Literally, alcohol was the solution to my problem. Okay? Now, this is opinion time. Just an opinion only. But I, the longer I'm around here and the more I get into this thing, I believe that the only reason that the word alcoholism, the word alcoholism, is because it's the treatment for what's wrong with you, not the cause of it. I say that because in my life, I believe before I was 21 years old, if I hadn't found alcohol, I'd have blown my brains out. I was a little guy. Mother and daddy used to tell me weird things. My precious little mother, she invented the Assembly of God Church. I know that just as much as I know I'm standing here. And I don't knock that, okay? I don't knock. She's a little four foot, ten inch Indian. I did get to straighten out the very top here. I'm Indian and Scotch. I'm Indian by birth, Scotch by absorption. <laughs> my little four foot, ten inch Indian mother, when I was born, had two things in mind for me. I was going to either be an Assembly of God preacher, missed on that one. Or I was going to be a doctor. But the one thing for sure I was going to be, I was going to be the second perfect person that ever lived on this earth. And so we had a little peach orchard in our backyard. And those trees, when the time I was 12 years old, were bare of limbs for her trying to make me the perfect person. Okay? But she had sent me on. I'm not knocking this church, okay, y'all? Because my little mom and dad are lying in a cemetery up in a little town in Malvern, Arkansas, having 80-something years of a fantastic life in that little church. Let's don't knock anything in here. Okay? Let's just don't do that. All right? That's not what this is about. But she had put me on the front pew of that church, you know. And I'd hear some things in that church. They'd tell me, that, boy, you've got to find God. And I want to tell you all something. I believe that every human being that's ever been born on the face of God's earth is born with a hole in their gut, don't you? I mean, they just got to have something in there. You can fill it with, with women. You can, men, whatever. Well, let's not go too far now, okay? <laughs> Believing, filling professions. And I filled mine one day on July 4th, 1950. I filled that hole in my gut. Let me tell you about that day. And I suspect if you don't remember your day, you're probably not here for the last time, okay? July 4th, 1950. I was 15 days short of 18 years old. In my hip pocket, I had a commercial pilot's license. There's enough people in this room to know you can't do that. You've got to be 18 years old to have a commercial pilot's license. Nowadays, you've got to have it back it up in a, with a birth certificate. In those days, you had to have a parent's signature. And I'd gone to that little precious Indian mother of mine. I said, Mother, would you sign this piece of paper? And Mother said, Well, honey, it's not filled in. I says, Mother, it's got to be typed in. We don't have a typewriter. Would you sign the paper? And loving me as only a little squaw can do, <clears throat> Mother signed that paper. And you know what I did. I went off and filled in. Instead of 1932, I put 1931 as my birthday and had my mother lie to the federal government. I was eaten up with guilt about that. I was five foot two. I weighed 108 pounds soaking wet. I had a little high, squeaky voice, and I was terrified of girls. I didn't do too good with guys. But I could talk to y'all looking at my feet for three or four words, but a girl come along and I'd look at my feet and speak in unknown tongues before I knew how, you know. But that day, July 4th, 1950, I found me a little old job up there dusting cotton up in Dardanelle, Arkansas, trying to build up enough flying time to someday become an airline pilot. If I possibly get enough size to do it, I didn't think that was a possibility. But they stuffed pillows all around me, and I'd go dust cotton up there. July 4th, 1950, my boss said, let's take the day off and go up on the top of Mount Nebo and have a picnic. And I had never smelled alcohol even on anybody's breath in my life. That day on the top of Mount Nebo, he opened up an ice chest there that was full of Schlitz beer. And I drank more Schlitz beer than anybody on that mountain that day, Billy. And I looked in the back of that ice cooler, and there was a bottle of scotch back there, and I got me some of that too. Now, here's the kicker, newcomer. When I got off that mountain that day, I was six foot two, honey. I weighed 185 pounds. I had a deep John Wayne voice, and I called up a little gal I liked down in Malvern, Arkansas, and asked her to marry me. And you Kirkies come along right behind that and said, you got a drinking problem, when it had just solved every damn thing in my life. 
I, I just talked about this the last two or three years, I guess. I didn't have another drink for three or four years. But this is a funny thing. You always say we have no faith in anything when you get to Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't give me that. I had faith in alcohol. One year and 15 days from the day I had my first drink on my 19th birthday, not having had another drink, just on the faith of what it did for me on July the 4th, 1950, I went to work for Pan American World Airways as the youngest commercial airline pilot in the world. And that's a record now that will never be broke because the requirements are too high. I didn't have another drink till I don't know, three years later I found myself in Sydney, Australia. And I met her. I met her. You know what I'm talking about? I met her, man. She's about... My wife's here, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. She's about this tall, and she, you know what I mean. And I looked at my feet again. I started speaking in unknown tongues, right? And there's a little cell back here that says Scotch whiskey. And I found some, and she did, and I did, and we did, and, and we're off on our journey in alcoholism, right? But I found out real early on, y'all, that I could do anything with a cup of drinks of whiskey in me. Do y'all understand what I'm talking about? I can do anything better with a couple of drinks in me. I like to never get a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous that taught me that I can't have a couple of drinks of Scotch whiskey. If I could, I wouldn't be up here tonight. I promise that. Okay. I found it. I finally got laid off from that job with Pan American. Went to work for another airline. And I, I found drinking and, and flying worked hand in hand together. Not I didn't drink while I was flying. But all things would. That worked up to the fall of 1968. When it became apparent to that airline I was flying for. That my drinking was kind of sitting on my flying time, you know. And I've been aware a long time that they're flying that damn old airplane is cutting on my drinking time. But simply due to the fact that flying air airplanes paid more money than drinking whiskey, I came in alcohol snobs. And I came to you people for one reason and one reason alone, just to save that job. I love our program on the traditions. I was reading them all ago. Uh, somebody's reading the tradition. You remember what the third tradition said? The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Now, don't hold up your hand. But how many of y'all had a desire to stop drinking when you came to alcohol? Now, be honest. Most of us had a desire to get some off our butt, right? I stayed around here ten months. And I must have said enough, of the, it's what I look back on, call my sin month, ten months of sobriety, right? But I must have said enough of the right words and did enough of the right things. I was asked to go speak over to Harbor Group over in Fort Worth, Texas. And I went over there one afternoon and I laid some alcoholics unanimous on those people. You know what I mean? I mean, I healed a bunch of folks that night, I tell you, no question about that. And I got my old pickup truck and I started back to where I live between the Dallas-Fort Worth area, little town of Euless over there. And I got to thinking about this thing. And I saw no reason why I couldn't take all of your experiences and combine them with all of my experiences. And all that vast wisdom I'd acquired in that ten months of drinking and go back to drinking normally. There's no place I had to go back to, honey. That first night when I got off of Nebo, Mount Nebo up there in Darnell, I drank that night until I ended up under the Arkansas River Bridge, Darnell, Arkansas. I've never drank normally. I've never wanted to drink normally. But you know what I did, don't you? The obsession took over, didn't it? Ruled out reality. I stopped at a little liquor store over there in Fort Worth, got a bottle of a squirt of scotch. And I woke up the next morning in the Fort Worth City Jail. And I started filling in all those squares, y'all. I love that. It's okay, isn't it? I mean, it's, as you go up to Canada or someplace, you got to explain y'all. But y'all got it, haven't you? Okay. I started filling all of those squares that I believe is necessary to fill in for us to successfully get in and work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that. I believe there's something that we could euphemistically around here call a bottom, and I can't identify it except maybe by this. It comes a time when I have had all of me that I can take. Okay? I believe that. And I came in, I went back out and... Got, got, I started, I, I, my marriage wasn't doing too good because of my drinking. I was on my second marriage. It started falling apart at the seams through that drink. And the job I'd quit drinking for, remember? 
I became absolutely terrified. Not of flying airplanes, but of myself. I was going to show up at the airport someday smelling too much like alcohol to get on an airplane going to work. Or shaking. Do you ever shake? God was talking about that today, Charlie. Shaking too much to even sign a clearance to get on the airplane. Or as undependable as my drinking had become, I was going to show up at the airport to fly the airplane someday, knee crawling, lap licking drunk. Which, of course, if you're a real alcoholic, you know that's exactly what I did. The chief pilot met me at the door of operations that day. They had been watching me for a while anyhow. And I like to stop there always and say this. That was not paranoia. <laughs> paranoia is when you think they're watching you, right? Now, they, I didn't know this, but just before that thing, they knew I was coming to work for that trip. And there were four chief pilots in the office. We're going to talk about him a little bit later on, by the way. And it's going to be a hell of a story. Four chief pilots, and by virtue of the one guy that met me at the door, he was a junior guy back there that day, and he had no choice. Also, I look back on it now, and I had four very good friends in that office that loved me very dearly. And this guy came out there and did a job he hated to do. He had to do it because, you see, way back in 1955, we're always talking about Alanons, okay? We're always talking about uh, enablers. Did you know that, that wives and husbands are not the only neighbors we've got? Have you ever thought about that? You know the biggest neighbor I ever had was the airline I worked for? 1955, I flew a, a DC-6 trip as co-pilot to New York. And we went, woke up the Belmont Plaza Hotel on Lexington Avenue the next morning at 5.30 to go to work. And I showed up for work as a co-pilot, and I didn't smell real good. And I was flying with this guy that was captain, and he, he was a lay Baptist minister. And he didn't say a word to me. But we went up to Buffalo, Cleveland, St. Louis, and back to old Eamon Carter Field. We got back to Eamon Carter Field, and he says, boy, follow me. We're going into chief pilot's office. And he went in there and told that chief pilot about the way I showed up for work that morning. And that chief pilot got up and told this guy's name, captain's name was Bill. He says, Bill, you get the hell out of here. That boy can fly an airplane better drunk than you can sober. Now, he didn't mean that. What he meant was, you brought me a problem that I don't understand. Get out of here. But guess what I heard? And this airline very near loved me to death. They should have fired me years before they did. But this guy met me at the door of operation that day. He turned me around. He took me back to the employee's parking lot and he fired me. From the greatest job that a human being has ever had, a job that I love more than any human being could love another human being even on earth, fired for drinking alcohol. And I went as straight as a beeline to the local liquor store. Was alcohol my problem, y'all? I don't think so. Getting fired was my problem. Drinking was a solution to it. Now, wait a minute, Alanons. I know what you're going to say. You didn't get your job back. No, but it got it off my mind. <laughs> and I bet you a $100 bill, if you go to Ross Perot tonight and say, Hey, Ross, baby, would you like another billion dollars? I bet you'd say, well, hey, well, yes. <laughs> and I bet you if you got him right down to it and get him to tell you why, he'd probably say, Beats the hell out of me. It'd probably give you a little more peace of mind. That's all I've ever wanted since the day, a little peace of mind. Well, that job went that home, you know, these fair-weather Al-Anons, you know, bless her heart, you know. Went the home and the, the wife, the family, everything I had. But with a little money I'd pigeonholed, I moved back up to Arkansas where I'd been raised up there. And I put in a business up there, and due to the fact I hired two really good guy managers to run it, my business took off and it did fantastic. And also, since I hired those two good managers, y'all, it didn't cut to my drinking time at all. And as by April 11th, 1971, I was in sad shape. I really was in sad shape. I weighed 118 pounds. I'm not built for 118 pounds. And for smart ass, you get into this, I'm, no, I'm not built for what I weigh today either. But. <laughs> but I went back to my mother's house that day. She was raising me for that second time, right? 
I went back to my mother's house, and that was my day of having had all of me I could take. I'd already had all of you guys I ever wanted, but that day I had all of me I could take. And I had some choices, and I submit to the newcomer tonight, you've got the same choices that I had that night. I can look around that place and find that pint of scotch I had there, and for a few minutes it might knock me out. I could blow my brains out, y'all, and that is another solution. Did you know that? Let me preach for a second. I was with talking about this today somewhere or another. In a, well, three or four years ago, this still goes on, by the way, daily all over the world. I kept up with a nine-month period of time with where, within 35 miles of where I live in Tyler, Texas. Eight Alcoholics Anonymous members committed suicide. Now, this is the kicker to it all, newcomer. The only thing all eight of them had in common was they were all eight sober. This thing is not about sobriety. Have you ever thought about that? The first page, I'm going to preach a minute, you ready? The first page of my big book says to show others out of me into you. Precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Flip it over to page 164, the last page of the book. We ask him each morning in our morning meditation for what can we do for the man who's still sick. Out of me into you. It says it on the first page and it says it on the last page. And I'll eat your hat if you can show me where it says anything other than that between page 1 and page 164. It's not in there. Not one time does a big book of Alcoholics Thomas even slightly suggest you don't drink alcohol. Would you believe that? Would you believe this? Would you believe that three times it suggests that you do? Drinking's not the problem. It's never been the problem. You're looking at the only problem I've ever had in my entire life. And while I'm on the sermon, I might as well continue, okay? If I'm to understand the 12 steps of this program, the first 11 steps are for nothing except to deflate my ego. And God, I've got a monstrous one. To where I can come to Paducah, Kentucky and be with you guys tonight. And in the twelfth step, then the first part of it says, having learned how to do that, get the hell out of me into you, I try to carry this message. Okay? That's exactly what I believe this thing is all about. I got over to my mother's house that day, and I, I, it, somebody had put in my mother's house in my bag in that back room where I was living a little message back there that gave me the name of a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous in Hot Springs, Arkansas, 21 miles away. Name was Jim Groves. Jim died about two or three months ago, by the way. And I called Jim. And I spent about three or four minutes telling Jim just what a lousy condition I was in. And I must have been quite affected because Jim bounced back on me and he says, My God, Rod, boy. He's always, he called me boy and says to everybody else, I, I, I just hate it, okay? He says, Do you think you can make it hot springs? And I said to Jim, I don't know whether I'm making it hot springs or not, Jim, but I'll try. And then Jim came back and said something to me, y'all, old timers, if you will, if you're with me. That's the reason I'm up here for the, you guys tonight. Okay? Jim says, Rod, you try to make it a hot springs. But then he said, if you can't make it a hot springs, Rod, I will come to you. The twelfth step of our blessed program does not say that the newcomer is supposed to come try to take this message away from us. Did y'all think of that? It don't say that we're supposed to try to take our name down to the local intergroup office and tell them, don't you call me unless it's Thursday between 3 and 4 and every other Thursday when I'm not playing golf. Something. Also, and I'm going to take off the rest of you now. Are you ready for it? It also says, it doesn't say we're supposed to pick up the drunk and drop him off at the treatment center. Now, I'm not down on treatment centers. Helen until recently owned half of one. But the 12th step of my program says we're supposed to carry the message. Okay? And Jim was ready to come. Jim was ready to come 21 miles out in the country to this poor dying drunk carrying the message. No big deal. I made it over to Hot Springs. I met Jim in the little the back of his little appliance store. It was a one-man operation. And I don't think he said hi, Rod. He opened that door and let me in, and he went to the front of that place and locked the front door. He was out of business for the rest of the day. 
For the rest of that day, he talked out, cost and office to me. He took me to dinner, to a meeting, and that night he took me home, a stranger, a drunk stranger. He took me home with him, and I spent the night with he and his wife and daughter in his home. God, we don't do that, do we? Read my book. It says occasionally we do just that. The next morning, he got up, went back to his business. He didn't open the front door. We talked out, cost and office all day. Another meeting that night, when that meeting was over, I jumped in my old pickup truck and went back to Mother's house, and boy, I felt pretty good. You know that? You know, Sam, I'd, I'd had the first meal I'd had in a long time, you know. Next morning, I got up and went over to the office. I got the two boys aside and said, boy, there's going to be some changes made around here. I said, for one thing, I'm not going to be here much for a little while. Well, no big news. <laughs> but I said, i got to get myself sober. And the only way I know how to do that is to get myself totally, completely, absolutely immersed in the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm up here to tell you all tonight I did that. When I wasn't in a meeting, I was with some of the AA member. And when I wasn't with them, I was into my big book that I have learned to absolutely worship and occasionally touched into the 12 and 12. And real quick, my life started getting real good. And just as soon as it did, y'all, y'all, I just love to get for you know. I did something that I would kill somebody. I got two guys sitting back here somewhere from over in uh, Missouri that I sponsored. They just showed up naturally late. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> that I would kill them for doing. I started redating my first wife. Now, not the one that just divorced me, but the first wife. She and our two boys lived down in Texas. And every other weekend, I'd go down and see that sweet thing, you know. And on often the weekend, she'd come to Arkansas and see me. And it looked to me like we were going to be able to put things back together again real quick. And just as soon as it did, I pulled her aside and said, Darcy, love you, like to remarry you, but there's something you got to understand. I said, I'm an alcoholic. And instantly, Al-Anon's, I said, but it didn't have anything to do with our marriage breakup the first time. You know what she said? Come on, Al-Anon's. She says, I don't think so either. Many four steps later, it had a lot to our marriage breaking up the first time, I'll tell you that. But I said to her, I'm sober. Too much. And if you choose to come in second to my sobriety, I'm going to change that one in a minute, by the way. She says, I'd li- I said to her, I'd like to remarry you. And the funny thing about that silly thing is she bought that thing hook, line, and sinker. She and the two boys moved up to Arkansas. We built us a fantastic lake out on a, a home out on a little lake there between this little town of Malvern and Hot Springs. Life could not have been better, y'all, except for one thing. I still wasn't flying airplanes. Now, baby, I get a little bit of criticism about what I'm going to say now, but it happens to be the truth. I still love flying airplanes. I love you people. I love Superwife. I love... Why is it? Why is it? Preaching again, you ready? Why is it we talk this Alcoholics Anonymous is something that happens between these four walls? That ain't Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where we meet. Alcoholics Anonymous is 23 hours a day out here under where I live. Did you know that? By the 12 step out of me into you, repetitive work on the 12 step program, I've learned to love you. I've learned to love my wife. I've learned to love the airplane. I've loved everything better than I ever thought I could. The rest of my life. I love flying airplanes, okay? It is my understanding that nobody in the world, and that's bigger than Kentucky, by the way, had ever been returned to the cockpit of a major airline after having lost their license due to alcoholism. Now it is my understanding that something in excess of 1,500 of us have. But at that time, nobody had. Now, just for the drunks. Isn't that just the kind of a challenge that a really good alcoholic likes, right? So I bombarded the airline. I'm still not going to tell you the name of the airline, right? Let me tell you why I'm not. It has something to do with I was doing just what I'm doing right now down in Dallas, Texas. And a great big old group down there, the Preston Group. They even used to have a sign in the back that said, Biggest Alcoholics Anonymous Club in the World. No, no arrogance down there, right at all. 
Everybody out there, it sure wouldn't be now. There's someone on the West Coast that make that look like a beginner. But there's four or five hundred people out there. And when I got through talking, a vice president of the company came up beside the podium and he says, Rod, boy, he says, don't say American Airlines behind that podium. <laughs> so I don't say American Airlines behind this podium anymore. But let me tell you why I do. I always want to get up here. When I get up here, I want to say this thing. Let me tell you why I tell you the name of that company. I am so interminably proud of that outfit for being such a leader as they have been in setting up a program for people like me. And not just setting up the program, but then insisting, not allowing it, but insisting that I about be doing what I'm doing right now instead of off someplace dying. Give me a good example today. It's been lots of years ago. I was asked to go speak to some AA conference someplace, and I had a trip to fly. That's no big deal. All I got to do is call around, find some other trip, uh, pilot trade trips with him, get the day off, go do my thing, and I'll call someone. That time, however, when I called around, I couldn't find anybody to trade trips with me. And I was just about to call him back and say I couldn't come do the AA thing this time when this great big old chief pilot, you remember the number four chief pilot that came out and fired me? He's number one chief pilot down there now. Now, American Airlines got over 10,000 pilots on their seniority list and 2,700 of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and he's got a hell of a lot more to worry about than this drunk out there in the country. But old boy called me out in the country. He says, boy, he says, you get up with your butt and go do your thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, I'll come out of the office and I'll fly your trip for you myself and we'll pay you for it. Now, that's what American Airlines thinks about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I suspect, y'all, it's what any company is going to think about Alcoholics Anonymous once they find out not what it's doing for us. It don't do anything for us. I get so tired of that. We say, keep coming back. It works. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. We work. How about this? Keep coming back. It gets better. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you ain't going to work these steps long enough and hard enough for it to get better. It's not going to ever change. <laughs> What's going to change is me. And then my perception of it changes. But once a company finds out what we're doing in here, once they find out what we're doing for ourselves here, once they find out that people like me have not had to call in sick but twice since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking, right? Wrong. I'll bet you out of that 10,000 plus pilots on the Mary Island seniority list, before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking, I'll bet I had the worst attendance record of anybody on that list due to misuse of sick or thief time. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking, and my attendance record got worse. You took away my solution, sweetheart, and all I thought about was suicide. Me being the first on this thing, they put a whole lot of, they did a lot of checking on me, and they have gone back and put a date on when I started working and reworking on a repetitive basis the 12 steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Me coming to meetings and not drinking. Reading the big book and turning it over to God. It's just like a 16-year-old boy going to church, reading the Bible, and leaving the little 16-year-old girls alone relieves his sexual desire. It don't take much more, does it? Just the doing of the deal. Just the doing of the deal. I believe I'm going to preach again. God, I'm not letting me do this tonight. I really didn't. I, I believe we're doing some newcomers some disservice in here. I really do. When we allow them to come here and say, now, you get on that front row and take the cotton out of your mouth and put it in your ears and whatever you say to these things, you know. And it's going to get better. Just don't worry about it. Don't worry about the steps. You'll know when to work the steps. Don't worry about the steps. They'll work you. My book tells me precisely to the second one to work the steps. It says if you read, somebody read it someday around here, said if you want what we have. What the hell do we have? 
Some old toot sitting over in the corner, been sober since Christ was in the pampers, hadn't had a bath in six months, hadn't brushed his teeth in three, growling like a bear. I don't want what he's got. If you want what we have, and are ready to go to any lengths to get it, what does he say? Then, not a week from next Tuesday at 2.15, but then, Rod, you're ready to work the steps. I don't think you ought to work these steps at all until you're ready to get better. Okay? If you want to lay around that... Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I bombarded the airline, and I got them to uh, let me borrow the, their medical department to bombard the FAA. And they told me if I could get the FAA to give me a, a reissue me a license fly, they'd let me go back to work. I think they thought they were safe, right? But being the con artist some of us are, three years from the time I was grounded, I was flying back for the airline. <clears throat> Life couldn't have been any better. We used to live up there in Arkansas and run that business. And the two guys ran the business. I commuted back and forth to work. Life could not have been more manageable. Don't forget that one. So Sam. Sam's heard this so many times. He could throw up. Life could not have been more manageable. It was on March the 8th of 1977. I brought a 727 trip back into Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And I had a couple of hours before I was going to sit around and catch a ride back to to the Little Rock Airport, back to my home, my business, and so forth. And I sat around there visiting with some of my buddies there at the operations. And I got a telephone call from out there in Arkansas where I live. It was my next-door neighbor on the lake there where we we'd built this beautiful place out there. God, it was just fantastic. His name was Jim. Jim says, Rod, 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 boy, there, there's been an accident up here. And my dad had been so sick for a long time, y'all. Now, back to preaching, if you don't mind, just a second. I can't leave the steps alone. That's the only program I know anything about, Right? I can't leave it alone. But since the advent of my ninth step work with my father, a man that I'd been terrified of all my life. God, I was just terrified of him. But since the advent of that, he and I had grown so very, very close since the immense work I'd done with my father. And I was, he was a very unhealthy man, and God, I just worshipped the guy. And I was always praying something's going to happen to him. I said, my God, Jim, is it my daddy? And he says, no, Rod, it's an accident. He says, it's been a burglary at your house or something next door. He says, Rod, there's been a shooting. He says, Doris is dead. Your wife is dead. Well, there's no need to go into the feelings and emotions we have at a time like that. Most of us have gone through something like that. But i got to tell you something, y'all. Some of us were talking about this today. In a short period of time, it took an airplane to get back to, to Little Rock Adams Field. Word spread across the state of Arkansas to the extent that when I got off that airplane at Little Rock Adams Field, you literally could not walk through the terminal for the Alcoholics Anonymous members. You couldn't do it. Somebody was talking about that earlier today. I believe, well, you, maybe Bonnie or somebody was talking about that very thing, Okay. You couldn't walk through the terminal building for you guys that were there. Now, Mother's Church had three or four people show up, too. And they did what they were supposed to do, right? They said, Rod, we're praying for you. And they put their arm around me. If we can do anything, call me. But you know what you idiots did? <laughs> you got in a fight <laughs> over who I was going to ride back to Mother's house with. <laughs> did it? Finally got them all settled out and unbloodied the nose and all that kind of crap, you know. And I got in the car and you drove me that 40 miles back to Mother's house. And you came in. Mother and Daddy had built me a little apartment back on the back of their place. And you know what you did? I hated you. Just hated your guts for this. You made a semicircle around my bed. And that's where you parked for two and a half days till the funeral came up. You never, I never got a wink of sleep. You had an AA meeting 24 hours a day around my bed. And it comes time for the funeral. You got, you, you, you put a suit of clothes on me and you took me to the funeral. And you know where you sat? Well, some of you sat. The rest of you had to stand in the family room in the funeral home. Okay? God, my mother and daddy just loved it. They thought, well, we've never had anything like this in a little assembly of God church. We just loved it. You know? In fact, my mother, bless her little heart, the greeting for my mother was, Hi, Francis House Church. 
And the last few years, Kathy can remember, the last few years of her life, I said, fine, I guess, but well, we're working with drunks now, you know. She loved, she loved alcohols and I was with all her precious little art, I tell you this. When the funeral was over, you took me back to Mother's house. You put a pair of blue jeans on me, and right then you took me to Alcox Nautilus meeting over in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And the next morning I got up and I went to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and flew another three-day trip. I didn't miss a trip to the entire thing. My wife being murdered the whole damn thing. I did the whole thing on days off. And another interesting thing, newcomer, the thought of taking a drink of alcohol had not even slightly crossed my mind. God, I had a lot of stuff going for me in Alcox at the time. Through that three-day trip, I got back to Arkansas, and word spread across the state of Arkansas to the extent that my next-door neighbor's wife... The woman who had found my wife dead was also the person that had killed my wife. Further rumors had it that my next-door neighbor's wife and I were having an affair. <laughs> it don't take too long for rumors like that to get out of hand. Maybe y'all don't know what rumors are in Kentucky. Sometime after the meeting, call me and I'll talk to you. Her trial was set for June the 1st of that year. The day before that thing, I came in off of another trip, went back up to sit at my, my dad's house, and he and I were talking over there in front of the television set, and a telephone rang. This is still real strange. Telephone rang. And it was a policeman downtown. The state police had a little office downtown in this little town of Malvern, Arkansas. And they said, just as polite as they could, Mr. Coston, will you come downtown and talk to us for a little while? We want a little information before the trial starts tomorrow morning. And I don't know about you guys and the program about Cox Namas, but I've got 12 steps in mind. And after the ninth one, there's a few promises. Somebody read them before one of the meetings today. The ninth promise says fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. And by that time in this program, I wasn't afraid of nothing. I mean, not anything. I used to have been terrified. I wasn't afraid of the devil himself. And I got back in my car. I went downtown. I parked across the police station. I got out of the car. And as I did, two plainclothesmen slipped up behind me. Throwed me around, threw me up against the car, put handcuffs on me, and arrested me for capital felony murder. Now, I thought the worst charge y'all had was first degree murder. The capital on the front of that thing means they're asking for the death penalty. They took me across the street, up the stairs, threw me in jail, sober. Now, a lot of you guys have been in jail in here drunk, and it ain't much fun. Don't do it sober. I mean, it's a bitch, okay? Don't do it sober. I stayed in there two and a half days. We had to come up with a quarter of a million dollar bond to get me out of that sucker. And when I got out of that thing, I didn't go to my mother's house. I didn't change clothes. I didn't do anything. I bet I smelled like a goat. I went straight to Hot Springs to my sponsor. And I literally crawled up in Jim's lap and I says, Jim, Arkansas's just gotten a scope too damn small for me. I said, if I can, I'm going to get the judge release me from the jurisdiction of this court until my trial comes about. I'm going to let those two guys run that business. And I'm going to move back to Texas. And to make a terribly long story terribly short, y'all, that's exactly what I did. And some interesting things happened. Interesting things happened. If y'all don't believe in the power of alcoholics, I don't know what you're doing here anyhow. I moved back to North Dallas in an area where I knew no one, an apartment by myself. And that's tough on me. I'm a people person. You guys have been around here the last two or three days know I'm a people person. That guy. Now listen to your line while you're on indictment for felony. So to the outcome of this trial, I'm unemployed. My wife's dead, I'm unemployed, I'm under indictment for murder, and this ought to blow your britches off. And my life was going absolutely fantastic. Simply because I was right here in the dead center, out of me, into you, 12-step working program of alcoholics and Is it any wonder to you people that I get a little peeved? I clean that up. Kathy's here. When some ignorant person... <clears throat> Comes through the back door of our group five times in a row with the same problem and can't get out of his misery. 
I don't give a damn what's going on in my life, y'all. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, when worked and reworked on a very repetitive basis in order to get rid of the problem and into the solution, will let me ride a scotia above this thing. I remember it's been seven, eight, nine years ago. I was asked to go speak up at, at, at uh, Youngstown, Ohio at a sit-down dinner up there, about 1,200 people. And I didn't mean this about like this room here, I imagine, something like that. But when I got up there, I rode my motorcycle up there. That's another two-hour story. When I got up there, I walked in the building, and I didn't walk as far from here to you. And a guy that invited me up there, said, he didn't even say, hi, Rod. He says, if you met 80. Now, we're getting close enough up to Youngstown up in here. Y'all might have know the story I'm about to tell. And I said, no. And we walked on. And we walked about that much further. And somebody says, have you introduced Rod to Eddie? And we went to the back of the room. We couldn't find Eddie because Eddie was surrounded by about 100 people back there. And they were all wanting to be with Eddie. And finally, we worked our way up to Eddie. And Eddie was this little guy looking over the table about like this. And the guy took me back there and says, punched me in the ribs. He says, last year at this time, Eddie was six foot two inches tall. Now, I have no idea. I'm not a medicine man. I don't know what I'm talking about. But Eddie had some kind of a bone deterioration disease. And they said, Eddie will be dead within two weeks. And two weeks to the day, Eddie died. Okay? But that night, Eddie was out of Eddie. That's what's going on in your life. How's everything in Paducah? God... Sam, it's so good to see you turkeys coming down here from Evansville. You know, Millie, God, you and Marietta, what? I missed you. So everything but Eddie and Eddie was doing just fine. Two weeks later, they called up and told the alcoholic synonymous member, says, if you guys ever want to see Eddie alive again, you better get on your horses. Get down here. He's in the hospital. He'll be dead in the next hour or two. So they got on their horses. They went down there. And, you know, they put on their long, tear-stained faces and all that stuff. And they crack open the door of Eddie's room. And Eddie saw him and he tried to raise up. But he didn't have it left him anymore. But he whispered to him. That's what's going on in Paducah. God Sam, Mary, Betty, and he laid back on the pillow and he died. And he never had a bad moment. And y'all know what that's called? It's called Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? Me out of the problem and into the solution. I was talking to somebody not long ago. It's been a, a long time ago I did this thing. I, I, I don't know if Kathy even knows this now. I went to see a guy dying, a, a step working member of Alcoholics Anonymous dying in the hospital in a rainstorm. I mean dying right then. He was not going to live to midnight. And we had to get out of there and go to meet him. His family wanted to be with him the last few minutes of life. And this guy was still as conscious as I am. And he could not bear to see us walk back to our cars in that rain. And he finally shut his eyes and died. And it wasn't all that tough because he had somebody else's problem on his mind instead of his own. And it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? My life is going... I did something else that summer. I started dating that little redhead y'all speak this afternoon. I got something I want to tell y'all. I got a number of things I want to tell you about her. <laughs> and with her here, most of them's the truth. <laughs> what y'all heard this afternoon is literally Kathy. That was not his talk. Okay? She is just exactly like that. It is tough living with a bitch that's so pure. But that's true. Okay. <laughs> Tonight's not the night, is it, honey? <laughs> uh, I started, Kathy and I started dating that summer. And just because Kathy had just gotten out of the world's worst marriage, and because of all the hell, I'm going to the electric chair, right? I mean, our life's not going real good, right? Just because of that, Kathy said it's an afternoon. We don't get good stuff out of good stuff in here. We get good stuff out of bad stuff in here. The way she puts it, we don't grow out of good stuff. We don't grow out of good stuff. How many of y'all came running through the door because you always wanted to be an alcoholic? You know what you did before you got here? You stopped outside the door out there and you said, well, I'm either going to go in there or I'm going to blow my brains out. And something like 30 or 40% of us blew our brains out. 
That's how serious this thing was. And here we're sitting around here all night having a, a hell of a good time tonight, you know. My book says on page 124, let me get back and preach just a second, okay? Cling to the thought rod. I think it says rod, doesn't it? <laughs> Cling to the thought that in God's hands, your dark past is the greatest possession you have. Impossible, isn't it? That's not the end of the paragraph, is it? It's a key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. Because of her hell and my hell, we got together quicker than closer than we could have any other way. And just as soon as I saw that our relationship, isn't that a beautiful word? Of our significant other, isn't that a beautiful word? Was becoming something other than a platonic relationship. You ever seen an alcoholic have a platonic relationship? I pulled Kathy aside and I said to her something that I mean a hundred thousand times more tonight than I mean when I said it. I said, I love you. And I, I guess I mean that more than it's possible to tell you, okay? And I says, but I'm an alcoholic. But now everybody else in aviation knows I'm an alcoholic, okay? But I said, I'm sober. And you know what I said to, to Doris? I'm going to make some of y'all mad now. You ready? Some, I said to Doris, and I said, and my sobriety is the most important thing on earth to you. I didn't say that to Kathy. Because you see tonight, I think sobriety stinks. Well, that's the way to get them quiet. Eh? If you mean the absence of alcohol in my body as sobriety, you can take it and keep it. I don't want any part of it. Right, right. I said to her, but my program is the most important thing on earth to me. And I'd love to marry you. But you're going to have to come and sing of that, do you understand? And I don't want to ever get up here and say, Kathy was then... Always has been the most supportive and understanding and working part of that thing anybody could ever be in there. I, uh, I was still off. <laughs> you know, we say uh, Al-Anon's are kind of controlling. Alcoholics don't do too bad at that. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Kathy's mother and daddy only lived about six miles from me. And Kathy and I are talking about marriage, man. We're talking about all that good stuff. All everything. Now, Kathy, <clears throat> Kathy was still flying, and I'm still off waiting for my trial to come about. And we started dating, see? In fact, we were getting kind of pretty close about that date and stuff, if you know what I mean. And she wouldn't introduce me to her parents. And it just made me mad in the hell. And one day when she, when she was out on a trip, it kind of crossed my mind about this thing, and I got to wondering about this thing. And it finally dawned on this little bitty mind of mine what it would be like if she did introduce me to her parents. She'd go to her parents and say, Mother and Dad, this is Rod. He's a guy I love very much, a guy I want to marry. He's half again my age. He's been married half a dozen times or so. He's unemployed. He's an alcoholic. And he's under indictment for murder. <laughs> but other than that, he's a hell of a nice guy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm going to tell something she don't like me to tell, but that never did stop me. We were kind of having a little bit of, Kathy and I were getting awfully, awfully close. And we started doing something that some of these guys in here know that I don't approve of. Now, this is just my deal and, and the people that I sponsor. We were getting so close that we couldn't get married because too many things was Clouding up all the time. We started living together. I don't approve of that anymore. Quite frankly, I think we need a better commitment than that, but that's my deal with them, okay? Okay. But we started living together. And I did everything in that house that was done. I cooked every meal. I made every bed. I washed every piece of clothes. I did everything that was done. She didn't do nothing. <laughs> and one day, one night, was living in this apartment. And I got all, got all, all right, cleaned the dishes, all that stuff. And I got all of our dirty clothes together. Taking them down to the end of the apartment building where a little washing chair was down there, right? And I was taking them out and I'd take her old dirty panties out and I'd throw them in there and I'd take her dirty bra out. What the hell? She's young. She'll grow into it. <laughs> and I did all this thing and finally I threw them into the washer and I'm just upset. And it's dark and it's cold. 
And I said, finally got him out of there and put him in his basket. I'm going back to the apartment. And now I'm kind of humming and whistling because, see, now it's my time, right? And I go back up to that apartment. And here she is piled into my bed on my telephone talking long distance to one of her buddies. And that ticked me off and sex was out of the question, right? The next morning I got up and I cooked breakfast, y'all. Now, when I cook breakfast, I've talked to you about ham and eggs and gravy and biscuits. I mean, I do it upright. And we got through eating. I'm sitting there about half out of breath. I got to get up now and wash the dishes, clean the house, and all that stuff, right? And I looked across the table. Now, come on, y'all. I looked across the table at that, that woman, and I said to myself, that's the best the bitch will ever be. <laughs> Sitting right there, she'll never be any better. And I asked myself a question. Is that acceptable or not? And I said, yeah. Knowing full well that she'll never be any better than that, that was acceptable. Now, funny deal, y'all. This is called Alcoholics Anonymous, by the way. Loving, expecting nothing in return. I got up from the table. I washed the dishes. I cleaned the house. I did the, exactly the same thing I did ex- before, except for one time. Funny. This time, I was expecting nothing in return, and a funny thing happened. Kathy became enough. Kathy became enough. I want to tell you guys something. It's my opinion tonight that I am married to what has got to be the world's most beautiful, sexy, Sweet, lovable, irresistible, adorable, brilliant women on earth. And y'all can't, you old horny boys can't have her, okay? But I'm going to tell you something you can do, guys. You too can go home tonight and go to bed with the world's most beautiful, sexy, sweet, lovable, irresistible, adorable, brilliant world in the world if you treat her that way. If you treat her that way. I told that years ago at a conference in Shreveport, and there's about twelve or 1,500 people sitting out there. And when I said that, it wasn't just this many applauded. It's two old women way back in the back. It just really got with it, you know. And when I got down, a guy named Ralph, I never will forget, Ralph was chairing me. I said, boy, I got the attention of a couple of those drunks back there. Then he says, no, you didn't. You got the attention of a couple of Alanons wanting to be treated better. <laughs> oh, shit. Well, you guys ever talk about sex up here? I mean, if you don't talk about sex up here, don't read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It just kind of crossed my mind. Let's get into it. I like to do this. <laughs> You've got to help a memory. <laughs> you guys, just the guys out here. Not the, not the women, because see, y'all don't know how the women feel, okay? <laughs> I know how you feel. I don't... <laughs> Back up. We'll start this all over. But you guys, now seriously, seriously, come on, you guys. Do you guys remember the very first night, the very first night you did it? I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about it. I mean, come on, man, your pulse is 2,000 beats, your face is as red as that guy's shirt back there. I mean, the most excited. And now you sit across the room from the same woman, and you look across the room at her, and you said, what happened to her? I expect I can promise you something. Now, this is not worded like this, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's worded enough like it to where it's effective. I think I can promise you something tonight. If you'll treat her tonight like you treated her that night, it will be the same as it was that night. God, I can't get work to get back to the room, right? <laughs> yeah, well, back to reality. Right? <laughs> my trial, that's reality. Reality, that's good. January 1978, my trial came about. And let me tell you a couple of fast things about that trial, simply because they relate to our cost One of them is simply this. If any of you guys are having any trouble doing your fourth step, maybe I can help you. Because I know a little district attorney down in the state of Arkansas that damn sure came up with some stuff out of my past that I forgot to put in my fourth step. He just might be able to help you, okay? 
<laughs> the other one is this. And this is a true, but it's a little hard to put in words, but let, give, me, give me a chance because it, it's, it's, I was starting to have some trouble with my thinking. Can y'all understand that? I was starting to doubt God. And God didn't want to do that. God had been so very good to me, you know? But my thinking was going something like this. Look, God, here I've given you the last eight years of my life, God. I've been doing the very best job that I could possibly be doing of getting the hell out of this problem and getting into that deal and working these lousy, stinking, rotten, infantile steps in my life, God. And just what the hell are you doing to me? My wife's dead. I'm unemployed. And I'm under indictment for murder. Just what are you doing to me, God? And I started getting a resentment against this situation. And I'm sure this doesn't happen in Kentucky, but take my word for it. In Arkansas and East Texas, every group has an inner group called a bunch of wise asses. They can be identified by little thin blue lips and high little funny voices. And they came to me and they says, Right, boy, if you have a resentment against the situation, if you can find any gratitude in that situation, the resentment will go away. And I thought, right? But I went after it as hard as I could looking for, and I couldn't find any gratitude in this thing at all. And I finally did a little mini four-step on this thing, y'all, and I could find no gratitude in it. And then it happened. Twice during the course of the trial, well, the first thing that happened was the prosecutor attorney found out it was out all. And he released it to the press, Arkansas Gazette and Democrat, Channel 4, 5, and 7. Boy, this kid's an alcoholic. Well, I didn't break my anonymity, but my, my two lawyers, against everything I could fight him with, broke my anonymity. They released it to the press. Yeah, he's an alcoholic, but he's a, he's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and has been for a number of years. Twice during the course of that trial. Two separate men called into my mother's house and says, Hey, if this boy can stay sober, going through what he's going through with, and do it in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, by God, we're going to give it a try. I don't know whether they stayed sober or not. I don't know if that's what my very good friend God had in mind, but I know this. As soon as it dawned on this little bitty mind of mine that something good was coming out of this ridiculous mess I was in, I couldn't keep a little gratitude from slipping in. And as soon as it did, the resentments left and they never came back. By then... Super wife was getting involved with my family, and she can attest to the fact that my entire family had a cotton picking ball during my murder trial. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous works when I work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the jury was out. I would, the, the trial lasted eight days. The jury was out 35 minutes, and obviously they came back with a verdict of not guilty. And I won't tell you something about that. I'm, I'm glad about that. I'm just tickled green about that. I really am. I mean, I never say enough about that thing. I've always loved being a center of attention. But let me talk to you. <laughs> Being on trial for capital felony murder was carrying out a scotch murder that further than I meant to carry that. Okay? It really was. What had happened, if you're halfway interested, was this. It won't take 30 seconds to tell it. The little prosecuting attorney had gone to that girl next door, my next door neighbor's wife, and had convinced her that he just might put that guy away for life on a first degree murder charge. But, and now this is supposition on our part, and there's some lawyers out there, and you know more about what I'm talking about tonight. Having Having a weak case, this, he didn't say but this is what we said. He would allow her plead guilty to second degree murder, name me, her husband, or a third party who they've yet to come up with their name as having conspired with her to do this thing. She could be guilty to second degree murder, get 12 years, and she'd get out in two. She got out in two years to the day. End of the trial came, getting back to flying came, celebration of all these things came, and still not a thought of taking a drink of alcohol. And it was July, as Kathy said this afternoon of 1978, that she and I were married. And I won't go into that. She did. Now, if y'all want to stay after me, we'll talk about it. I don't think any two people's ever had what we've got. Okay? Be a neat ending to a story, wouldn't it? Give me just a little bit longer. Okay? 
Because in October of 1979, Kathy put me in a hospital in North Dallas with double pneumonia. And for ten days, four times a day, they brought me a little pill called Percodan. And when I got out of that hospital in, in, uh, on November the 9th, 1979, Kathy took me back to our apartment. And we hadn't been in that apartment for five minutes at the most when I figured out a little errand for that precious lady to run. And when I saw the taillights of her car leave the parking lot, I jumped in my pickup truck and I headed for the liquor store. And I ended then what was eight and a half years of this fantastic sobriety, most of which had been damn, damn good out of me into you, step work and sobriety. And for four months, like in two days, I did me some white knuckle controlled drinking. Y'all ever done any of that? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. I've got a line in my big book. Of all lines in there, I don't want to ever memorize. It's on page 30. And it says that our great obsession is to control and enjoy our drinking. I stand before you in Paducah, Kentucky tonight to tell you something. I can do either one of those things. But I'm a son of a bitch if I can do both. I can control my drinking, go straight to the insane asylum. I can enjoy my drinking, go straight to the cemetery. But I cannot do both. And for four months, like in two days, I controlled my drinking. And I went as crazy as a Betsy bug. September 7th, 1980, I woke up with every ounce of insanity human beings ever had. I wasn't drunk, hadn't been drunk. But all I think about was alcohol. When could I get out there and get me some? What's got to get to smell least? How much could I drink without getting drunk? Well, I get to Montreal. I'll talk to Kathy about my was getting to Montreal the next night in time to get a liquor store. I should have put a bottle in my bag. Every thought I had was about alcohol, and I didn't like what I was thinking. And I made a decision, y'all, to do something about what I was thinking that became the, the most difficult thing I've ever done in my entire life. It ain't going to sound like much, but give me a shot at it. I made a decision to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, that don't sound like much, does it? It's not to a door swinger. But it was a deal to me, baby, because I'd made a lifetime commitment to you people in Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? The next night was a Wednesday night. There was a meeting at the DFW at the Dallas Fourth Airport. There was a meeting over there I'd been a charter member of. And I went over there, and I looked through that little window in the door. You know what I'm talking about? And I was there 15 seconds before the meeting started. And I looked in there, and I says to myself, Jesus, if I hadn't had that four months of Scotch whiskey, I'd be the most <coughs> senior person in that room. No senior in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And I turned to walk away and die. But the guy in there that's chairing the meeting saw me and he came outside and he got me and he got me with a nap of neck and took me inside. And they started the meeting. They gave me a desire chip and all that stuff. And I got started back into Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything could not have been better than it was. Kathy and I got back into two or three meetings a day. She got into Al-Anon. I got back, I was taking back some of the people I was sponsoring. They got back into temp work and with me, life could not have been better. Two months almost to the day. The company called up, the medical director, the the company called up. You know, we haul people and freight around pretty fast, but rumors travel is kind of slow. And the rumor that I had been drinking again got back to the company, got back to the federal government. And he called me, and when he called me, and I knew I was grounded, because my little deal that I got back to flying the first time was, says, you ain't drinking any more booze ever. I mean, ever are you going to ever drink any booze. And I drank again, they knew I drank again, and the FAA knew I drank again, too. But this time, there was something we could do about it, right? There was a program set up for people like me. We talked about that a while ago. But it was going to be a bitch, y'all. It was going to be months and months and months of dealing with the federal government, the red tape of the federal government to get their exemption back to go back to flying airplanes. But the worst part about it was this. Sober or not, and I'm sober two months, I'm back in a program two months. Sober or not, 
I was going to have to go into a treatment center. And there's a lot of people in here that we know real well, and they know that I have a rough time staying away from Super Life, Super Life 28 minutes, let alone 28 days. But if I was going to get back flying one of their rotten airplanes, I was going to have to do it. So I went up to Denton, Texas, and I entered a place up there called Westgate. And I went into that jitter joint with the worst attitude a human being could enter one of those places with. Like I said, I went in there sober. And they ain't set up for people sober. It's just like going to jail sober. I'm next time, if anything like it, I'm going to tell the guy that takes me up there, just a minute, we're stopping by the liquor store. I hadn't been in that place three minutes, so I ran across this counselor up there. I'd met him before. His name was John L. And I didn't like him when I met him in meetings before. But this time when I took one of those spot check inventories, it talks about the 10th chapter to 12 and 12. I says to myself, Rod, boy, you ain't never hated anybody in your entire life. John L. filled in that square for me. <laughs> now, no longer do I hate John L. We got in this program together, and things worked out pretty good. I hadn't been up there four or five days, something else happened. A guy on the outside, let me tell you who it was. It was a guy that had chaired the meeting where I went back and got the desire chair. He said something about me. He got back to me in the jitter joint. That was at best a modicum short of rigorous honesty. And my old, old sponsor, old wine old Joe, would have said he told an interminable inexactitude. <laughs> the bastard lied about me. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Now looking back on it from a little distance, a little sober distance, it was a really a very innocuous little remark. It didn't mean much at all. But I'm up there, I'm up there looking for something. Y'all know, just some of y'all been there. You know what I'm talking about. I'm looking for something to resent. And I developed me a resentment against that guy like you wouldn't believe. And here comes that bunch of wise old. Hell, they had him up to jitter joint too, you know. They had those funny little lips and, you know, that funny little voice. And they said, right, boy. They said, God, I love this. <clears throat> they says, if you resent somebody, they says, pray for him. And man, I didn't like to hear that talk. But I'm hurting, see, I'm hurting bad, so I took some direction, so I prayed for him. And I prayed for him, and I prayed for him, and I prayed for him, but he didn't die, you see. <laughs> and I kept praying for him, and praying for him, and he still didn't die. And I got something else to tell you. The resentment didn't go away either. And I like to never got out of that place and got into a sponsor. Y'all believe in sponsorship up here? Kathy and I get to go across this country quite a little bit and do this kind of thing. And where we see strong sponsorship, we see strong alcoholics knowledge. Okay? And where we don't, we don't. It's just as simple as that. I got this sponsor. And my sponsor believed in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he got me in that book and he says, boy, he says, I don't know where you got that pray for him crap. He says, that story in the back of the book says something like that. He says, there's 26 prayers in this book, boy. He says, not one of them do you pray for yourself. I said, hell, Joe, I know that. He says, here's something you didn't know. Not one of them do you pray for anybody else either. Did you know that? He says, all 26 prayers, you pray for knowledge of what you can do. For this is a program of action, Rod. Get out of yourself and get into action, Rod. God ain't going to do a damn thing that you can do, Rod. Just pray for guidance of what you can do. I did that. You know what the first thing I did for him was? Seriously, and I don't mean this to be funny, but it turns out the way. I didn't kill him. Seriously. Later on, I did something. I got out of the jitter joint. I'm going to start winding this thing down here pretty quick, y'all. I got out of the jitter joint, and I tried to start figuring out. After eight and a half years of really good, out of me, mostly, out of me, into you, 12-step working sobriety, what happened to me? And y'all know just as well as you know you're sitting there what I did. I let the little Percodan pills take the blame for all of it. And if I hadn't got a sponsor and it let it stay there, I'd be lying in somebody's cemetery today. Okay? But my sponsor made me work the steps. Now, don't get scared. I'm not going to run all the steps. That's been done two or three times in this thing, and they're done so beautifully. 
But let me touch a couple of them. I did a four-step, and that four-step, something came up. Unbelievable. Yeah, the little quick Pergadet pills might have been a slight catalyst. But that four-step showed me some things. I'd gone through the death of my wife. I'd gone through the loss of a job. I'd gone through being put on trial for capital felony murder. And I'm sitting here now, and I'm, the year of that's gone. I'm back to work a year, and super wife and I are married. We got a brand new paid for Cadillac. We're building us a new home down at Cedar Creek Lake, 70 miles out of Dallas. We got more money in the bank than we ever knew anybody had in the bank. And I put back my easy chair one day, and I says, Rod, if you can go through all of that and go through this sober, you've got it made. And it wasn't 30 seconds till I was in my pickup for the liquor store. Y'all, my problem's not alcohol. It's never been alcohol. My problem is me, and it's manifested in complacency. I've got it made. It'll ruin my relationship with, with, with you, or my friend. It'll ruin my relationship with Super Wife. It'll ruin my relationship with flying airplanes. And it has, and it will ruin my, ruin my relationship with my sobriety. I've got it made. Okay? Let me talk about the 12th step just briefly. What does it say, just for the hell of it, okay? Having had a spiritual awakening. What is that? My book says it's learning how to get out of myself and into others. You remember what it says there on the bottom page 14, top page 15? It says, for if an alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. That's the only way it says my book to have spirituality. Having had a spiritual way, learn to work the first 11 steps, right? Effectively to learn how to get rid of me and get into you. Now I can carry the message. And then it's got a bitch in there. Have you ever noticed the third part of it? Nobody ever talks about it. And practice these principles in all my affairs. Can I cheat on Kathy? Don't answer that, babe. No, seriously. Can I cheat on Kathy? Let's go back. Just, I, I, I didn't mean to play with the book this much tonight, but that's just the way I do things. I guess I'm sorry. Roman number page 26, but written by a little doctor that wasn't even an alcoholic. And the bottom of the page, he's got a sentence in there that tells me what's wrong with me and what will fix me in one sentence. He says, we become restless, irritable, discontented. Hey, y'all. That's all that's ever been wrong with me. And then he says the fix. Unless we can again experience a sense of ease and comfort that comes at once. By taking a few drinks. That's what will fix me. No. I cheat on super wife and I become rough. I'm afraid she's going to catch me. I become restless. I'm afraid the husband of the woman I'm cheating is going to catch me. Nowadays, I'm afraid I'm going to catch something. <laughs> That'll make you restless. I'm discontented, honey. You know. <laughs> but there's another thing and nobody seems to ever talk about it. And it bugs me to death that we don't. It's called conscience. What about that? Mother and daddy used to say things. The preacher even told me one time, Rod, if you had any conscience, you wouldn't drink like that. You know what I wish I'd have said? I drank like that because I've got a conscience. And I go home tonight and I've cheated on the woman that I love more than anything else on earth. And I lay down beside her and I can't go to sleep. And I know right down the street where the liquor store is and once more I can knock myself out. No, I don't, cheat, I don't do these things because I'm trying to get good or go to heaven or get out of hell. I'm trying to work and rework the 12-step program by Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, how do I want to get down from here? Let me do one thing I always do, okay? On May the 21st, 1987, American Airlines inaugurated a brand spanking new non-stop 747 trip from Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas to Tokyo, Japan. You can tell by looking at me, I've been somewhere a hell of a long time. Out of that 10,000 pilots on American Airlines seniority list, for the last three years and 15 days, I was number one. I've been there longer than anybody else had. Somebody told me not long ago that I flew, I flew for American Airlines and Pan American together, the two airlines, longer than anybody in the world ever flew for any airline in the world. Hell, I don't know. It ain't no big deal. I mean, all you got to do is have your daddy put you on the seniority list the day you're born, right? Drink just enough Scotch whiskey to keep your blood nice and thin where you're going to have a heart attack or stroke, right? And find out Colic's Anonymous just a split second before it kills you. Anybody can do it. 
But as a result of that seniority, I was awarded the nonstop trip from Tokyo back to Dallas-Fort Worth. Now, the reason that was a good trip was because that's the trip where the TV and the magazines and all that was, you know, was going to meet the captain and interview him. No ego. You understand that, right? But right after the award came, the news that our vice president of flight, now that brown nose in Turkey, he was one of our pilots. And he used to be a vice president uh, assistant. He used to be a co-pilot. And then he was a captain. And then he was a chief pilot, assistant chief pilot. You're getting a message, y'all? And then he was a chief pilot, and then assistant vice president of flight, and then vice president of flight. He was going to displace the captain on that trip, and he was going to fly it. Well, hell, I've been here longer than he has. I called him up and said, Al, you're not going to do that, are you? And he says, yeah, that's what I was going to do, Rod, until we pulled it up on the computer and saw that you were flying captain on that trip, and we want you. <laughs> the biggest nemesis American Airlines has ever had. We want you to represent American Airlines on that trip. Now, that's a neat story. But let me tell you how neat a story that is. Al Brown, Vice President of Flight, was fourth chief pilot in 1970 in the office that had to come down the stairs and fire me for showing up drunk. Now, if y'all want to tell me that Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work, tell it to somebody else, sweetheart. Don't tell it to me. Because it works in what I've got in my billfold. It works in who I sleep with. It works in what I drive. It works in where I live. It works in everything in my life. With one minor qualification. I have got to work it. Okay? Let me close this thing by one thing. Somebody asked me to do this thing yesterday. I don't remember who it was now. My sponsor. Last year about this time maybe. Or a little earlier than this even. I did. I was doing a Saturday night thing at, at the state conference in North Dakota. And I, everything I do, I, I make a mistake, right? And it just dawned on me that my sponsor in 1982 had, was a Saturday night speaker there. And I remembered how he closed that conference that night himself. And I closed it that night with the same thing he did. And I later found out that he did in North Carolina, North Dakota, right? But this is what he did. Somebody today has read... The chapter, the fifth chapter behind this podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you remember how they started? Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Joe said, what's our path? What's our path? Joe said he likes to liken our path to 12 gates. So situated in time and space as to kind of ascend up this little hill. With the 12th gate being right at the tip or top of the hill up there. And the first gate down here is a bitch, isn't it, y'all? It really is. That's not just for alcoholics. Powerlessness is a bitch. My mother and daddy told me always, said, boy, if you'll just fight this thing, you're a hell of a guy. If you'll just fight this thing, you've accomplished a lot. You've been the youngest commercial airline pilot in the world. You've done all these things like that. Just fight this thing and you can beat it. And I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you guys say, hey, quit fighting. Give up. Surrender. And the first gate opens, right? And the second gate, I screwed it up too. Because you know what I thought? I thought it said I had to come to believe in something. It doesn't. I says, I have to come to believe that's something. What's the difference? Just a play on words, right? No, it isn't. Try the dictionary. In something is very exclusive. That something is all-inclusive. And the gate opens. And I screwed up the third gate because I thought it said I had to turn my will and my life over to care of something. And it doesn't. I had a hard time with that. Coming out of that little church I came out of, it says made a decision. And the gate opened. And four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. And I got to the twelfth gate right at the top of the hill. And I looked over it into a pasture, y'all, that contained everything that I've ever looked for in my entire life. Okay? But I couldn't open the gate. Because up against the latch of that gate leaned the dirtiest, stinkingest, biggest old drunk you have ever met in your entire life. Man, he was bad looking. 
And he looked over at me and he says, Rod, boy. <laughs> he says, I saw you coming up the path and opening the gates. I've tried that, but I couldn't make it. Would you pick me up, Benny? Would you pick me up and take me down there and show me how you did it? And God, I didn't want to do that. He was too big and too ugly and too smelly. But I picked him up, and really it wasn't that bad. He wasn't that big and heavy. He didn't smell that bad. And I started back down the path. And I looked over the other shoulder, and the twelfth gate was wide open. And I came to believe. That's in the steps too, isn't it? I came to believe that this is not an ending. It's just a beginning. Thank you all so very much.